In October of 2018, a group of St. Louis University's graduate students disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while researching the connection between rhetoric, composition, and witchcraft. Since then, only these episodes of Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina have been found. The Witchcraft of Writing. Welcome to Episode 2 of The Witchcraft of Writing. I'm Byron Gilman-Hernandez. And I'm Natalie Whitaker. And Natalie, when we first started uh, planning this Witchcraft of Writing series, you mentioned an interest in this because your English literature course this semester has a lot to do with witchcraft. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. So I decided to teach uh, nature, ecology, and literature this semester because I specifically wanted to teach literature texts that were centered around witchcraft and enchantment. Mm -hmm. And it was primarily because I saw a lot of connections between the use and sort of like taking over of nature with how we portray witches and enchantresses. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, sort of like um, that often, especially in, in earlier literature, there's a, combi a combination of witches and enchantresses also having power over nature. So there's a fear of nature that then gets embodied in the witch mm. or enchantress. So you see it in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Macbeth even, um, and their, their uh, chanting of like using, you know, newt's tongue and dog tails. And um, so that was, that was kind of my original idea with the class. But what I, I started noticing um, now that we're two books in using uh, a couple of recent young adult texts, uh, Children of Blood and Bone and the novel Lagoon, was that so often um, the, the magic and the witches were surrounded by language. So language took on a very important role in the depiction of magic. And it made me start wondering, well, what happens when you can't speak or when you have a speech impediment? Is the ability to be a, a witch in itself exclusionary? Hmm. So these witches are kind of, um, like you said, this power of nature are kind of outside figures. But at the same time, there is kind of a, uh, an exclusion, like that power structure is just kind of reconstructed outside. Yeah, I think that's a good way of of looking at it because there, there, there's this binary that gets created of an us versus them. And so often it's uh, that the witch is representing, say, a, a resistance to the, to the them, right? And they, they have to learn spells or cast spells or be able to speak in that language of magic, which then actually makes them more exclusionary, kind of like the the power that they were fighting in the first place. In the previous episode, which you haven't heard yet, we actually talked a bit about um, the idea, like you say, that magic very much wrapped up in language is something that goes all the way back to Plato. And the idea of that you can speak words and move people, you can speak words and move the natural world as well. And one of the things Plato uh, that Jacqueline de Romilly cites as one of the issues Plato and Socrates had with Gorgias is that he presented this witchcraft, the spellbinding ability, as something that could be taught to anyone. 
as sort of a um, almost egalitarian thing that anybody with, well, I suppose not egalitarian, but anyone with the money to hire Gorgias can learn to be a spellbinder, an enchanter, something like that. And you're talking about a tradition that often sees that uh, kids are born with the gift or talent for it. Do you feel that's coming up in your, that divide between the two? Definitely. And I almost wonder if that's kind of connected because you you bring up the idea that anybody who can pay mm-hmm. to learn this is, is, is able to do it. And I definitely think there's a socioeconomic uh, aspect to um, magic and practical witchcraft where it's really a middle class, upper class mm-hmm. um, sort of even even gift, I, I I might I might say, or ability to learn it is is kind of there uh, only for uh, middle class and and, and upper class mm. people, um, and then when you have in literature, there's something about you have to be born with it. I mean, how often do we read texts where somebody legitimately is able to learn? M- real magic like actually rational empiricism yeah so all right so in that divide we were kind of first before this episode talking a little bit in terms of like magic as sort of a classes system Mm -hmm. in terms of probably the most notable source of magic in current contemporary pop culture uh harry potter yes has those elements in there that we were talking about Um, if you could elaborate a bit on that specifically the classist elements Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I think one of the things, especially when thinking about uh, language and magic, is the the scene uh, where Hermione is being with Ron, and they are supposed to cast a particular um, spell, and she corrects his pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Wingardium Leviosa versus Leviosar. Exactly, mm-hmm. and I think that's um, that's a sign of not only how uh, exclusionary magic is to those who could have a speech impediment or could be mute or anything like that, 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 that there are these rules to how you can do a spell correctly in order to even make the magic work, but also that that creates um, an educational divide for those who perhaps learn a word through reading rather than being able to hear it. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, for those of us who teach, we are constantly confronted with because we are in the academic world. And often we're reading texts more than we're maybe pronouncing them correctly <laughs> in front of like a governing board who would know the exactly perfect way to pronounce it. Yeah, so the uh, uh, pronunciation guides of the 19th and 20th century, um, the, the pocketbooks and whatnot that <laughs> right. were like trying to kind of stamp out and codify, receive pronunciation and all that. Right. <laughs> that culture. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like, so yeah, talking about Harry Potter, but you mentioned two books in your class, Lagoon and the other was? Uh, Children of Blood and Bone. All right. And you mentioned that this theme kind of emerged in those books. How so? So um, those two books are written by uh, young uh, Nigerian-American women uh, in the past, oh, Let's see, I think Lagoon was published in 2014, and Children of Blood and Bone uh, was published uh, just this past April or May, so 2018. So very recent works um, where the authors, both authors' purpose purposes was to um, kind of combine some 
social messages with their Nigerian heritage. And what I've learned through um, working with these texts and um, kind of surrounding post-colonial texts, um, criticisms around them is that the Yoruba language in particular is very important to their heritage in Nigeria. And so these books are constantly referring back to needing to either revitalize that language, needing to use that language for magic, that there is in some ways a proper language for magic. Huh. And so in this way, we've got sort of sort of an oppositional that there's like the high classist Latin inflected mm -hmm. academic language of Harry Potter versus this magic as a form of like cultural reclamation. Yeah, that's huh. and that seems to be what I'm constantly uh, hitting whenever I start thinking about or talking or teaching uh, about witches, witchcraft and magic is there's always two sides. There's always this binary, this that language is important well that's a good thing but then also language is exclusionary or that language is um is reclaiming something but then also that that it's exclusionary so you know this kind of actually reminds me of something i've encountered in uh william covino's grammars of transgression um it's an essay um i believe i've mentioned to you before mm -hmm. about donna haraway's notion of the uh cyborg manifesto to the jewish mythic figure of the golem um, a creature that Covino says is explicitly written into being. Like there's a, a, a piece of like uh, the uh, Kabbalah is left in its mouth and the word for uh, emet, meaning uh, I believe life is written across its uh, forehead. And if you erase the, the E character, it's just met, which means dead and that kills it. And it's explicitly literary character because it can't talk. And so there's legitimately in um, halakhic dispute amongst rabbis questions about a golem's like personhood because it can move it can do tasks for you it can do like things and has some like animate spirit to it but like questions if you kill it is it murder and uh kind of uh entertaining to imagine but does it count for a quorum for prayer and the rabbis rule that the fact that it cannot speak, that it's mute, that it is not fully human. And this notion of like speech being a fundamental human, what makes us human, does kind of tread on some um, concerning grounds with muteness and, like you said, language impediments and other senses of what makes us the privileged in and out groups. Um, but continuing on that, so in these has this come up in your class discussions specifically? Not, not specifically in that same sense. Like it was, uh, it was a discussion that my class was having about what they, what trends they were noticing in the books. So when I asked them, "What have you seen that you can you can look at both texts and, and think this is important?" and language was one of the things that they brought up. Hmm. Um, and admittedly, they didn't take it so far as disability studies, but because it's something that I've been researching on my own, I then started discussing that with them. So it did at least open up this question of like, oh, well, what do you guys think of of this discussion of language and witches? And but what if they couldn't talk? Hmm. Um, and they were kind of stumped by it, I admit. Like, so we, it's definitely something that we need to revisit as we're reading more texts. Yeah. But. 
mm-hmm. to return to that notion of the dichotomy we have of like you know the language of privilege and the language of the dispossessed and then mm-hmm. the third way of people who have no language um there's kind of another dichotomy that is springing up to me in this discussion is this idea that um when we talk about witches and disability and whatnot is that my like archetypal image of a witch like you know right. the, the crone in the bog is probably someone you know who has some like debilitating like physical issue or is otherwise kind of deformed do you think about that in terms of this idea of uh, sort of the normative body and witchcraft yeah I think that's actually really important because it once again shows this like separation so what I've noticed is there's this traditional view, like you're like you're saying, there's the bog witch, there's the crone, there's, you know, the um, the enchantress and every the evil enchantress in every Disney movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, the loathly lady, if you're into Chaucer and that tradition, um, who's normally hunchbacked in some way, has a crooked nose, is ugly. So the this like very kind of old sense that ugliness in itself is connected to disability, is connected to sin, um, is connected to something that's wrong with society even. And that is definitely a more traditional view, but what we're noticing with literature, going back to Harry Potter say, is this, is witchcraft and magic being held up as, as so, sort of like the opposite of that. So no longer are witches necessarily portrayed as evil or ugly, um, and so they don't take on that same uh, appearance of disability or appearance of ugliness. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, like, sort of as we see, like, kind of almost like a, I don't want to say necessarily explicitly feminist, but mm-hmm. definitely there's a feminist reclamation going in there. Yes. That we're seeing an evolving image of witches that kind of does engage with maybe a problematic concern of, like, that deformity, scarification, um, warts right things like that associated with evil and as we make our like you know witches we're reclaiming them as an image we make them less evil and in doing so we take out those signifiers without challenging them exactly and i think that's the problem is instead of actually confronting these stereotypes of disability that cause us to create in our literature and folklore, which is as ugly as disability as sin, we're just whitewashing it. And we're just saying, okay, well, we want to reclaim witches, so now they can't be ugly. <laughs> you know, or, and I wouldn't, you know, of course, that's a generalization. I'm sure there are some texts out there that don't do that or, or, or don't whitewash it and, and they confront it in a, in a healthier way. But it's definitely a question that we need to ask. Like, why, why are we not confronting? what we've been doing to witches for the past thousand years. <laughs> and this is actually kind of making me think to a degree about the uh, film Hocus Pocus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you've got, uh, I mean, it's sort of a, a maiden mother crone mm-hmm. trinity there, but you do have the uh, Sarah Jessica, wait, is it Sarah Jessica? Carter? Yeah. Yeah, as trying to the, the young, um, conventionally attractive witch, mm-hmm. and then her sisters are the more stereotypical Halloween witches, but at the same time, they're kind of a unified right, evil right. group. But, you know, that it's kind of disentangles. But yeah. Still, and, you know, honestly, that you bring that up, that makes me think of, I mean, there's there's always or 
always. There's traditionally in like the Western canon been two kinds of witches. There's the ugly old crone, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the succubus, the seductress, mm-hmm. the 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 one that maybe um, if we think of like the Salem witch trials, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that they that they were uh, often talking about. So. So yeah, so you've got sort of the uh, double reason to punish a woman for being unattractive or outsider and for being attractive, but... Yeah, there's no way to win. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all right. So yeah, so we've been talking um, sort of about this, uh, the complexities of this, of like how bodies, and I think this is something that came up in the before talk about the idea of magic as compensatory. Yes. (laughs) So I I feel like this kind of goes... uh, goes back to Harry Potter. Well, I'll, I'll probably end up using Harry Potter as an example. but um, It is pretty dominant. <laughs> yeah, enough. right. So I, I, I know it's pretty safe. It was actually because I am teaching uh, the first Harry Potter book um, in my class this semester. It's the book I'm saving for the end, you know, during Christmas time where, like, everybody's dealing with finals. And I, during my syllabus day, I asked my class of 25 students who's read, you know, the first book, who's read the second book. Nobody had read any other text except for Harry Potter before and and it was like unanimous they'd all at least read Harry Potter so it does seem to be a touchstone Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be able to work with but I've been working a lot for uh or working with for a different project um Jay Dolmage's uh 2014 theory text uh called Disability Rhetoric where he um argues about rhetoric being a power in communication and creating like social hierarchies. Um, And one of the ways that he approaches it is he created a uh, taxonomy essentially of of 11 disability stereotypes that he saw being used throughout literature and throughout depictions of disability in films, literature, mythology, that sort of thing. And one of them is uh, the the stereotype of overcoming or compensation. So what I've noticed in, I would say primarily the recent texts that uh, have a witch or witchcraft or anything like that, magic of any sort, that it's often, say with Harry Potter, where he's a young boy who's been abused, uh, essentially abused by his family for so many years stuck in a you know living underneath a a staircase you know um not able to really live his life he he has a scar he doesn't he's orphaned like all of these things signifiers of being othered and exactly mm -hmm. like his his family is clearly othering him and he knows no other way well in a sense like he's cosmically compensated for this by having magic that is Yes, that is why he is othered. He isn't aware of that. It is why his family, one of the reasons why his family treats him this way. Um, but, oh, look, it's okay because at least he has this. Hmm. Without really confronting the fact that he's been abused for so long and mistreated in this sense. Um, but because he's compensated, it's almost like, well, we're not even going to talk about that or deal with that. Hmm. Yeah, that is a criticism I've heard of Harry Potter before, that your uh, protagonist trio, um, you've got one who's kind of signified as lower class, mm-hmm. one who's kind of from the, the, the muggle world, so kind of treated as like, you know, a cultural outsider, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes some like disability associations almost like that because they can't 
you can't do magic, you can't interface with the magical world. Yeah. And then finally, Harry, who has those signifiers of being the abused child, and they don't really come to anything other than, like, to show they're not the bad guys. <laughs> right. Like, they've got the proper signifiers of humility, you know, that they've been in some way wrong, so this compensatory magic exactly is what's driving it rather than, like, you know, uh, a real culturally just. And... Uh, Actually, one other thing is that, like, this image, like, compensatory magic, to take it to, like, a really even older sense, like, the icon of, like, the blind seer. Yeah, or, mm -hmm, yeah. Notions like that. All right. So, yeah, so in your class, where you're talking with students, you're seeing the themes of uh, the language as magical, the spoken word having a sort of power that um, oral language has, that the spoken word has, that when you mispronounce a word... Mm -hmm. It's shaming. Yes. And kind of awkward in that. And that, I think, ties into this notion of, like, you know, in witchcraft, like, the ability to speak right. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Or anything else that uh, we forgot to cover in this? Oh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming here. Thank you. On uh, Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, The Witchcraft of Writing. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment, tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Byron Gilman Hernandez at byron.gilmanhernandez at slu.edu. And remember to follow us on Twitter at CAI underscore lab. Thank you for listening.